Good morning, Bethesda. Before we open the word this morning, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in that name that is excellent, that name that is above every name. We come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. And we ask you, my Father, that you would open our ears to hear what you would speak to us by your Spirit. And Father, that we would not just be hearers of what you're speaking to us, but that we would become doers of your word. For any son, for any daughter in this house that questions the things that you're doing in their life right now, that's uncertain about their call, their purpose, and their identity, I am asking you, Holy Spirit of the living God, would you stir in the hearts of those sons and those daughters, and would you make known to them who you are and begin to open their eyes to see your plans and how they fit into those plans. More than anything today, Jesus, We are asking that your name be magnified and that the excellency of who you are be presented in such a way that our hearts would burn within us and that our lives would be transformed. For it is in your excellent name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I have just one verse of scripture to start with this morning. It's Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. And it simply says this, Before I formed you, In your mother's womb, I called you or consecrated you, and I knew you, and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you, I knew you, I consecrated or called you, and I ordained you. As the director of Bethesda School of Ministry, at some point during their residency and internship, most of my students will find a private moment to have a conversation with me. And that conversation will go something like this. I don't know who I really am. I don't know exactly what it is that God's called me to do, and I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be. These three questions are not unique to the students of Bethesda School of Ministry. They are common to all of humanity. We are hardwired with a need to know who we are, what we're supposed to do, and where we are supposed to be when we do it. I think if we step back for just a moment and look at ourselves as a 21st century culture, most of us will have to admit that we are in an all-out epidemic of identity crisis. Never before has there been a moment in history, from my perspective, when people are more confused about who they are. And there's not enough cosmetic surgeons, there's not enough counselors, and there's not enough self-help books in the bookstores to help us discover who we are. Not only do we not know who we are, we no longer know what we're designed for. We no longer know what we are called to, what we are set apart for. We are constantly trying to find our purpose in life. There are people that leave their families to go and try and find themselves and find their purpose or find their identity. There are grown people with children that are walking out of their marriages and relationships because they need to find out who they are and what they're called to do. And then the question, Where am I supposed to be? I think that this is evidenced by the fact that people go from church to church to church, and some of them even end up sitting behind their computer watching online because they don't know where they fit in. Now, to those of you who are watching us online, I know that you're watching online because you can't get here this morning, and that's understandable. But there are those who have replaced real time in the body of Christ with a computer-generated version because they don't know where they belong. 
Several years ago, Stuart and I were at a conference, and a part of this conference, there was a meeting afterwards, and they gave you those little sticky badges. And it says name, and then it was a blank. And you're supposed to take a Sharpie and typically write your name in that blank. But in this particular gathering, we were challenged, instead of writing our name, we were challenged to write something other than our name that identified us. Now, it was a bunch of doctors, and they were talking about things that was way over my head or not something I was really interested in. So I began to look for other things that would capture my curiosity and my interest. This is what I noticed. The majority of people on their little sticky badge, they wrote their relationship. I am a wife. I am a husband. I am a son. I am a daughter. I am a friend. And they identify themselves by their relationship. Now, that was one group. Then there was another group, and they identified themselves by what they did. I am a doctor. I am a teacher. I am a pastor. I am a construction laborer. I am a manager. I am a marketeer. And they identified themselves by what they did. And then there was that other, that third group, and they identified themselves by their location. I am from Alabama. I am from Georgia. I am from Texas. I am from South Carolina. I am from California. I am from Bethesda. I am from Lockheed Martin. And they began to give a geographic designation as to where they were from. And it just kind of caught my attention and my imagination that typically when we think about who we are, we think about who we are in terms of relationship. We think about it in terms of occupation or what we do. And we think about it in terms of geographic location. I think here in the fifth verse of Jeremiah chapter 1, I think we find God addressing all three of those. Before I formed you, I knew you. This is who we are. We are known by him. And that's our identification. I consecrated or called you. That's our vocation. That's our occupation. And I set you apart or I positioned you. And that's our location. Here's the background for the book of Jeremiah or the background of Jeremiah individually. He's a child when God gives him this information and this call in chapter 1. He's probably 14 or 15 years old. He is the son of a priest and probably a priest in training himself. He's growing up in a village called Anatoth. This is going to be the hub or the metropolis area of education and religious life. This is going to be a place where priests would come to be trained. This is going to be the place where all the libraries are and where all the theological research is going on. And Jeremiah is growing up in that environment. But he's also growing up in an environment where the sound of war is all around him. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to the Assyrians and has been decimated. And the southern tribes of Judah, which Jeremiah is a part of, is being daily bullied and threatened by the Babylonians. And any day now, they're going to come in and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and take the people of God captive. So let's look again at Jeremiah 1.5. And let's look at four words that changed everything. This passage starts off, before I formed you. That word formed is a Hebrew word, yatsar. 
Yatsar is almost exclusively used of a potter working with clay. And the clay that's being crafted is the Yatsar. And the activity that's being done to the clay is the activity of Yatsar. I formed you. This probably isn't going to mean much to very many of you, but this is in a cal imperfect form. And what that means is that it's an ongoing before I will form you. Formation doesn't just stop when we exit the womb. That formation continues from first breath to last breath and everything in between. I look at you this morning and God is forming you. And you are being formed by his master hand. You are experiencing the Yatsar, the crafting of God. It's interesting to me that when you look over at Jeremiah chapter 18, the potter's referred to as a Yotzer, which just reminds us again that the craftsman is the master potter. Before I will form you, before God ever even puts two cells together in your mother's womb, he knows you. This takes my breath away. He doesn't know just a little bit about me. He doesn't know just external things about me, eye color, hair color, height, food preferences, the sound of my voice. He doesn't just know that. He knows me. He knows every decision I'll ever make. He knows every failure I'll ever experience. He knows everything about me from beginning to end. And here's the breathtaking part. He still chooses me. Because even while I was a sinner, he loved me and died for me. And the same for you as well. He knows you. There are no secrets about who you are and the Father. He knows the deepest, darkest, worst thing that you've ever done. He knows the worst day of your life. He knows everything about you and he still loves you. He knows you. I think we spend so much of our life longing and looking for someone to just know us. This is where I, our identity comes from. Who am I? I am the one that's known by the Father. I am the one of which there is nothing about me that's hidden from his eyes. I'm the one and he sees right through me. And yet he still loves me. If we could grasp the truth and the reality of just how much he knows us and just how much he still loves us, it will change who we are. We'd stop trying to prove ourselves to everybody. We'd stop lying because the truth seemed inadequate. We would stop trying to work ourselves into acceptance. We would stop being so concerned about someone else's opinion of us because he knows me. And he loves me. And because he knows me. And because he loves me. Think what you want. Say what you will. Because I am confident in whose I am. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows every sin. He knows every choice you'll make. And he still loves you. He knows you. He consecrates or he calls you. I have so many times in my life looked at the call of God as being what I do. I am called to do this. I am called to do that. And I have interpreted or understood the call of God on my life and the life of others in the context of what I am called to do. I want to shift that for you today. 
Because I don't think God's nearly as concerned about what you're called to do as he is about what you are called to be. There are six callings of God. There are probably more, but I just want to give you six this morning. There are six things that God has called me and you to be. The first thing that he's called us to is salvation. You are called to be saved. We know from John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might become the sons and daughters of God. We know from 1 Peter that it is the will of God that none should perish, but that everyone should come to faith in Jesus Christ. You are called to salvation. Nothing else in your life will work until you surrender to the call of salvation. There may be some of you in this sanctuary this morning, and you have never said yes to that call of salvation on your life. And you wonder why everything in your life is topsy-turvy and upside down. You wonder why nothing works right. And even if everything out here is going right, something on the inside's just not right. You've got to say yes to his call of salvation on your life. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. It's as simple as this. Father, I believe that Jesus is your son and that he died for my sin. And I want you, Jesus, to become the Lord and the Savior of my life. If you pray that with sincerity, God will do what you have asked and he will respond to your request for salvation. He calls you to salvation. If you have never responded that call, you need to do that today because, again, nothing else in your life will make sense. Nothing else will fit until you say yes to his call of salvation. The second call is the call to surrender. Now, this is not so easy as the salvation part. The salvation part has its difficulties, but after we are saved, God calls us, surrenders the third one, separation is the second one. I got them out of order. God calls us to separation. We know that when we are born again, we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness, separated from that darkness, and we are moved into the kingdom of his marvelous light. We are told throughout scripture that we are to come out from among them and be holy and to be separate. God calls us to be a separate people, separated unto himself. God calls you to be separate. That doesn't mean we don't live in this world. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. That's separation. Sometimes people have interpreted separation as I'm going into my room and I'm going to shut the door so nothing out there can get in here to where I am. But that's not what separation is. Separation means I live and I move and I breathe and I have my being in him. And because I have my being in him, then I can walk in this world and this world cannot touch me because I have nothing of this world in me. God wants you to be separated if you look at the book of Genesis, you'll find there from the very beginning that God reveals himself to be a separating God. From the very beginning, he separates light from darkness, solid ground from water, that which is of earth from that which is of heaven. He separates the days and the months and the seasons. God is a separating God. Then he separates Abraham from his kinsmen, and he separates Abraham from Lot, God is a separating God. Some of you have bucked at this call to separation. You have resisted it. And you have said no to the call for separation. You want to keep the same friends that you've always had. 
But if you keep the same friends that you've always had, you will eventually do what they're doing. You won't impact them. They will impact you. Sometimes you can't go back to the same family context that God brought you out of because you need to grow up and get strong and walk fully in your deliverance. God is a separating God. He may separate you from some old ways. There's no maybe to it. He will separate you from some of your old ways. We can't do what we used to do. We can't live and think and speak like we used to speak. I think a part of the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives is that day when we get up after we've accepted Christ and we look at ourselves in the mirror. It's the same eyes. It's the same face. It's the same body. It's the same clothes. But something inside has changed. And when we open our mouths, there's a different conversation that's coming out. When life events happen, we respond to them differently. Paul's going to go so far as to say in the book of Corinthians that one of the ways that you know that you are saved is because you are not who you used to be. You have been transformed. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. He calls us to salvation. He calls us to separation, and he calls us to surrender. Romans chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present or surrender yourselves unto the Lord as a holy sacrifice. God's looking for surrender in our lives. Some of you have fought and resisted, and you've done anything and everything except surrender to the Lord and surrender to the processes that he might have you in. I have a saying with Bethesda School of Ministry. In some of our private conversations, I will say to them, embrace the process. And what I mean by that is throw up the white flag and surrender to the Lord. Put yourself in his hands and let him mold you and make you in the way that's pleasing to him. Salvation, separation, surrender. The fourth one is service. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For brethren, you have been called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an occasion to the flesh. But with love, serve one another. We have been called to serve each other. As a matter of fact, when we teach leadership around here, it's always in the form of the inverted pyramid. If you're going to be the leader, you must be the servant. And servant leadership is our approach. And it's what we teach at Bethesda School of Ministry as well. To be the servants of all. Jesus taught us this in the Gospel of John. On the night that he was going to be betrayed, what did Jesus do? He disrobed himself, wrapped a towel about his waist, and he served his disciples by washing their feet. And he said to his disciples, what I've done for you, you ought to do for each other. Church, we ought to be serving each other. I've heard people say, but I don't have the gift of service. I have the gift of this or I have the gift of that. Well, if that gift is not being outworked with a heart of servitude and an attitude of service, that gift is not being used correctly because he calls us to be servants. Do you notice how all of these are things that we are called to be? We are called to be saved. We are called to be separated. We are called to be surrendered. We are called to be servants. This is who we are to be. Because the outworking of what we do has to be filtered through who we are and the character that he develops within us. The fifth one 
You're going to love me for this one. Salvation, separation, surrender, service. Church, he calls us to suffering. He calls us to suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 simply states it like this. Why do you think it's strange, the fiery trials that you are enduring or suffering through in this moment? Another passage says, don't you know that these things will cause your faith to come forth like gold out of a fire? He calls us to suffering. I've been a part of movements in my life from the time I got saved in 1980 up to present. I have seen moves come through the body of Christ. And one of the things that each of these moves or many of these moves have tried to do is they've tried to explain away suffering. They've tried to excuse suffering. They've tried to create gospels or theologies or doctrines that say, come to know Jesus and you'll never suffer again. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you are going to have to take up your cross and follow after me. A cross is not just some cute thing that we wear on a chain around our necks. It's not some pretty icon that we have as an occasional reminder of what Jesus has done for us. I tell you, church, God is calling us to live our lives from the cross. Galatians says it like this, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the description of the crucified life. Your flesh will suffer. When that alarm clock goes off at five o'clock in the morning for you to have a devotional quiet time with the Lord, everything of your flesh will say, just turn it off and don't do it. And there's a certain element of suffering. When people say unkind, mean, cruel, even untrue things about you, and the Lord says, keep your mouth shut, your flesh will suffer. When your family rejects you because of your faith, it will create suffering. When you stand for Jesus and the righteousness and the truth of who he is, suffering is attached to that. We're called to salvation. We're called to separation. We're called to surrender. We're called to suffering. We're called to service. And finally, we're called to spiritual maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 says something like this. We should all push toward that fullness, that mark of spiritual maturity. Paul's going to say in another place that it's time that we should walk away from milk. We do desire the milk of the word as babes. But there comes a time that we need to grow up in spiritual stature and maturity and desire the meat of the word so that we are no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We're called to spiritual maturity. I have found in my lifetime, looking at the mirror of my own actions and attitudes, I have found that what I want are the benefits of the maturity level above me while maintaining the responsibility level of the one below me. I want all the good stuff. I just don't want the responsibility. I want to go when it's pleasing to me, but I don't want the commitment. I I want to be in church because the music is wonderful and the preaching can stir me and inspire me, but I don't want to commit. A lack of commitment and a lack of responsibility are indications 
of spiritual immaturity. Church, I don't know if you sense some of the things that I sense, but I perceive that as a nation, even as a world, we are headed towards something. Something that's the book of Revelation in proportion. We are headed towards something at a very high rate of speed. So while the rest of the world is dancing, while the rest of the world is wondering what the Kardashians are wearing or wondering what the latest political antics are, it's time for the body of Christ to grow up, get in the Word, get in the body of Christ, and learn to serve. He's calling me and he's calling you to spiritual maturity. I have a t-shirt that I wear. I actually have it in a long-sleeved and a short-sleeved version. And I get more compliments on this t-shirt than anything else I wear. And the t-shirt simply says, I just can't adult today. We all have those days and we all have those moments. But church, it's time for us to put away those t-shirts and grow up. It's time to put away childish and childlike things and become men and women mature in the things of the faith, no longer knocked to and fro by everything that comes through, no longer easily offended, no longer easily hurt, no longer quick to shoot before we even know what we're shooting at. It's time for us to grow up and to love like Jesus loved and to be the servants that he's called us to be. Why is it that we always want to know what God has called us to do while trying to bypass what he wants us to be? When we are becoming what he has called us to be, then we have the ability to more clearly see what he's called us to do. I have had many questions asked of me about what has God called me to do. But very rarely does someone call me or come to me and ask me, what do you think God wants me to be right now? What do you think he wants to form and develop in my life right now? I came into faith in Christ during the charismatic movement of the late 70s and early 80s. For those of you like myself who remember or you've heard or reminisced about that movement, you know that it was a glorious moment when the Holy Spirit was just flowing and baptizing and moving and ministering across denominational lines, across ethnic barriers. It was a glorious moment, and it was marked by experience, but there was a serious lack of character. I believe with everything that, it was, that is within me that God is up to something in this moment, and a part of what God is up to, it isn't to deny us experiences and encounters with the Holy Spirit, but he's up to developing the character in us that will allow us to sustain those experiences and not be moved by the feelings and the emotions, but to be moved by the truth of who he is. He's looking for a people who know that he knows them, that he has called them, and that he has positioned or place them. It's always interesting to me that before God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, I called you, I ordained you. To me, it works something like this. Before he ever even put me together in my mother's womb, he said, you know, I need someone who's going to have a mouth. I need someone that's going to have an edgy attitude. 
I need to have someone that's a warrior at heart. I need to have someone that once they're convinced that it's right, they're not going to move from it. Let's make her about five foot seven and give her green eyes. Let's put freckles on her face and let's give her a southern accent. He knew what I was going to be, and he designed me to fulfill his call and his destiny on my life. You are who you are, the person that you are. Everything is by divine design and intention for you to fulfill the call and the plan of God on your life. He formed you that way. What a marvelous God we serve. He knows you. He calls you. He ordains you. So here comes the big question. How does all of that that's in me get worked out of me? I'm so glad you asked that question. Jeremiah chapter 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. How do these things get worked out on us or in us? On the potter's wheel. I find it unusual at times that when I read this passage and I've heard others preach on it, that the emphasis is always on the clay, that's us, or on the potter, that's the hands of God. But without the will, nothing happens. I don't know about you, but my life is typically in the spin cycle. Here's what it looks like. I lost my job and I wasn't expecting it. My wife left me, and I had no idea. My children are on drugs. What's happening? I got the job, and I didn't like it. I thought everything was okay, but it wasn't. My husband died, and I didn't expect it. My wife died, and I didn't expect it. I sold my house and bought another house. My kids are moving to another state. Now they're having grandchildren and they're away from me and we spin and we spin and we spin. We are living life on the spin cycle. Sometimes that spin cycle is faster than we know what to do with. Sometimes that spin cycle leaves everything around us in a blur and we can't see anything clearly. We live life, much of it, on the spin cycle. When you're in the spin cycle, there are three things that you learn. You learn consistency. Because you see, as long as you're aware of, consumed with what's going on around you, there will be no consistency. It is my understanding that when a potter throws the clay, one of the first things they have to do with the clay is center it. It has to be balanced. It has to become consistent. God's looking for consistency in your life and my life. Are you at home the person that you are at church? Are you at work the person that you are at home? When nobody's watching you, are you still the same person that you are in public? Consistency. 
We have been living double, triple, multiple lives. Here's my church face. Here's my family face. Here's my work face. Here's my, I'm going to Walmart to buy groceries face. God's looking for consistency, and he will keep you on that wheel, spinning you to bring forth consistency. You stay on the wheel because God's looking to bring contentment in your life. Contentment with godliness is of great gain, and contentment is not the same thing as being complacent. Paul said, I've learned to abound, and I've learned to have nothing, but in it all, I've learned to be content because contentment with godliness is of great gain. Are you really content? If you are where you are forever, are you content because you know that where you are is where God has placed you? And if he leaves you in that place, as uncomfortable as it is for the moment, if he leaves you in that place, can you focus on him and not the other stuff? Consistency, contentment, And God wants you to have confidence in him, not in your feelings, not in other people's opinions of you. He wants your confidence to be Godward in him. Consistency, contentment, and confidence in God himself. You see, God has a will for you. Every one of us, God has a will for us, and we spin round and round. Sometimes we spin faster than at other times. But church, We spin round and round. And there are moments when we are confused. There are moments that when what we see is nothing but a blur and we can't figure out why we can't focus on anything and we just go round and round and round. That's the moment that we need to surrender to the work of God in our lives. You see, the clay doesn't get to ask, what are you doing? The clay doesn't get to say, hey, that's too high. When the thumbs dig and gouge into it to create the opening, the thumb doesn't get to say, or the the pottery doesn't get to say, get your thumbs off of me. And then when the fingers press in to form that vessel, and you got pressures from within and pressures from without, and you're spinning, God's making you. He's making you to be so that you can be qualified to do. He knows you. He calls you. He positions you. And then you're formed according to his foreknowledge of all these things. And then on the potter's wheel, when the calling and giftings in your life are birthed forth. But there's a problem. We are formed, known, called, and ordained, but we so often reject the potter's touch. We don't like the spin cycle, so we try to form ourselves. Or we try to deliver ourselves from the will. We might even put ourselves on the will of culture or our own carnal will instead of the will of the Lord. Church, I believe more than anything else this morning that God's calling us to a place of surrender to his will. To a place of once again saying to the master craftsman, I am clay in your hand. Do with me as pleases you. And trust in him. Let consistency, contentment, and confidence begin to emerge in your life. So here are some things that I want you to take away today. Thing number one, he knows you from beginning to end. And even with this knowledge of the good, the bad, and the ugly, he still calls you and me 
and positions us. Number two, he is the initiator of all these things. He forms, he calls, he consecrates, he ordains. He is the initiator of all these things. He alone does these things. The clay does not get to say to the potter, make me this kind of vessel. Make me a worship leader like Brent. Make me a preacher like Michael or Josh. Make me an administrator like Pastor Dan. Make me an intellect like Jason Merritt. The pot doesn't get to say to the potter, this is what I want you to do with me. The potter does with the clay as he wills, and he makes you into a beautiful, wonderful vessel that only you can be. My job and your job is to say yes to all the calls that I listed for you. Yes to the call of salvation. Yes to the call of separation. Yes to the call of surrender. Yes to the call of suffering. Yes to the call of service. And yes to the call of spiritual maturity. That's our job. Say yes to the calls that will allow us to be what he wants us to be. The fourth takeaway. When we are becoming what he has called us to be, then he will clarify for us what he has called us to do. When we say yes to what he has called us to be, then we will receive clarification of what he has called us to do. And finally, we are all in a spin cycle. The most productive thing that any of us can do is the spin cycle is to embrace the spin and let him work into you and out of you consistency, contentment, and confidence in God himself. The invitation is simple today. It's an invitation to surrender to the will and to the touch of the master potter. While Brent is playing, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked myself for the last two weeks as I've been preparing for this morning. And the question is simply this. Are you clay surrendered to the potter, willing to embrace the will while he outworks his plans in your life? Or are you like me? Some days I'm surrendered, some days I'm not. Some day I embrace the spin, some days I reject the spin, and I need to be better at it. If you are in this house this morning and you're saying, Father, I'm in the spin cycle, and this morning I embrace that spin cycle because I know it's you, would you stand with me? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, here we stand. We are all in spin cycles. Things have happened that we didn't expect. We've lost people that we didn't expect to lose. We gained people that we didn't expect to gain. And we spin and we spin and we spin. But Father, this morning, we submit, we yield, we surrender to your touch, the touch of the master potter. And we say, do with us as you will, for the honor and for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.